You're listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Louisiana Basin has now gotten more than 43 days of rain and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Flooding from New Orleans and all the way to Hammond has brought a lot of businesses to a halt. Orange crops for the year are in danger of being decimated. The winter storm that froze much of the South over the past couple of months has taken a toll on whatever growers were hoping to salvage after another bad year. Congress continues to debate over the climate action bill, now ballooning to more than $3 trillion. The Wilson Republican Party continues to hold fast against the current bill. Meanwhile, President Katherine Emerson says that she is ready to do whatever is within her power to make this bill happen. Cities all across the U.S. are experiencing the highest temperatures ever. In Dallas, the thermostat popped up at 106. In Boise, it got as hot as 103. And down in Miami, it was a blistering 105 degrees with a heat index of over 114. Now proclaims many of the coastal regions of Vietnam, especially the Vung Tau area, a disaster zone. Hundreds of thousands of residents have been forced out of their homes as floodwaters remain also, sitting in Miami's place mayor now. Miami's calling for the state and the federal governments to do more to help. The October King Tide is the worst ever as waters have reached more than three feet across Miami Beach and parts of Miami-Dade. The current seawall is not working in the pump system has been working non-stop for more than five years. struggle with mudslides as rough weather lingers over the city. They have now experienced more than three straight weeks of rain. People have left many parts of town because they're afraid of the mudslides taking them away and washing them into the ocean. Some are staying in their homes to protect whatever they own. Meanwhile, ports in Cuba remain closed as flooding in the streets of Havana worsens. Tens of thousands have... What is the Earth going to look like in the year 2072? That's 50 years from the release of this podcast. I'd like to picture stepping off of a time vessel, and it's the year 2072, and I enter the city of Miami. I picture a very different skyline uh, as old buildings were replaced with new, more modern, energy-efficient, climate-proof structures. Um, I picture the streets looking different. The houses of old are long gone, and they've all been replaced with buildings made of very different material from what we use today. I don't think that we'll have flying cars, but hopefully more public transit. I see a lot more water. The water's come up and it's filled some neighborhoods in. I think that there'll be more lakes and rivers as humans have forced the water into channels in order to protect the rest of the communities as best they could. You know, climate change, it feels like a future problem. Unfortunately, it's a now problem. I mean, just look around. The planet is getting hotter. And we're feeling it today, which means it's probably going to get worse. Can we do something about it? Can we stop the planet from reaching that three degrees Celsius rise that world scientists are warning us to avoid at all costs? Well, one thing I think is for sure. The youngest generation, the Gen Z, 
of all the living generations, they're going to be around to inherit a world of our doing. And that, of course, is the purpose of this podcast. It's going to look at the future of climate change, mostly through their eyes. Season one of Planet Earth 2072, we're going to focus on the city of Miami and the region of South Florida. And you can hear the full interviews with all the folks in this podcast on the Facebook page under Planet Earth 2072. Also, go to planetearth2072.com for more background information on the podcast and the novel of the same name. Now, let's begin this podcast, and we're going to start it with a conversation I had with environment reporter Christopher Flavelle of the New York Times. He's been covering the issue from a lot of different angles. And by the way, when we recorded this interview with Christopher, the Biden infrastructure bill had just passed. And within that bill, billions had been set aside for climate issues. Also, you can find links to all of Christopher's work on our website. Let's start with the the Biden infrastructure bill. And I mean, just looking at it briefly, billions uh, have been set aside for communities to prepare for the climate crisis. How significant is this money? Look, let's take a glass half full, glass half empty approach to that question. Glass half full is, it's huge, right? And my colleague, Coral Davenport, and I wrote this right after the bill uh, passed the House. It is Uh, by any measure, the most money ever provided by Congress for climate resilience and climate adaptation writ large, Uh, tens of billions, depending how you count some of the programs. Uh, So definitely uh, good news for people who are worried about how this country can protect its residents. Glass half empty take on it is, well, it is an amazing amount. It doesn't begin to come close to what is needed. Uh, both both accounts, of course, have a grain of truth to them. I think the real question with the bill is going to be how intelligently do the various federal agencies spend that new money? Do they look, in particular, do they look for ways that new projects can not just be sort of bigger versions of past projects? So can they, you know, sort of the narrow way of looking at that money is, okay, we're going to build even bigger culverts or seawalls or elevated roadways uh, do the same thing, but a little bit more, right? That would be the narrow way. I think the, the more aggressive way of looking at this bill and this money is, can federal agencies in partnership with regions like South Florida find ways to sort of think up, plan, pitch, fund, and build genuinely novel approaches to reducing exposure to hurricanes, sunny day floods, wildfires, heat, what have you. Uh, And that's a tough one because almost by definition, no one knows what that looks like. But one recurring theme in adaptation is we haven't done a great job either funding it or thinking through what it should mean. The funding is now at least partially addressed this bill. We can now focus on the question of what does adaptation look like and if i'm sinking into semantics by all means pull me back out but this is this is a really interesting point in adaptation that i think most people haven't got their heads around 
there isn't really much agreement on what adaptation means and even how it compares to resilience. Resilience is the easier term, and it's usually meant as, as sort of a, a catch-all meant as a catch-all phrase for how do we protect the ways of life that we already have, right? If you want to make, say, Miami resilient, you find ways that it can be less shocked by hurricanes or by sunny day floods or heat waves or whatever, right? Adaptation is different. Adaptation means how can we change the way we build or the places we live or our lifestyles and, and patterns so that we are less hurt and inconvenienced by severe weather and changing weather patterns. Well, so that's great, but it raises the question, what counts as success, right? I mean, the cleanest kind of adaptation is let's all leave the coast, right? If you're exposed to a hurricane or a storm surge, don't live there anymore, right? That's adaptation. That probably isn't what anybody wants, right? So I think the thing that the United States really is behind on and has to work on isn't just finding the money coming back to the infrastructure bill it's not just about finding the money it's about having a conversation between different levels of government and with residents about what level of disruption we're willing to accept in our lives how much we pay for it and if we can't do it everywhere how do we choose uh so i think that's sort of the next big challenge just making those decisions about what we expect from our elected officials and how much of our current lifestyle we want to try and hang on to. And that's the that's way harder than finding 50 odd billion dollars to spend on these projects. I wonder how much is there, uh, you know, when it comes to actually cutting emissions and trying to curb the increase of temperature? Are we actually putting enough? Can you put a dollar on that, a dollar amount on that and say, this is what we need to do, spend, so that we're not making it worse? Yeah, the whole reason as a reporter, I focus on adaptation, which is a decision I made years ago, was that it sure seemed clear to me, and it still seems clear to me, that we are just not going to cut emissions nearly fast enough to avoid really significant harm from global warming. And, you know, how fast are we going to cut it? I don't know. No one knows, right? Are we going to are we going to come close to the 1.5 degree target? I don't think so, but maybe. Um, so it's i think it's it's really challenging to talk about you know how much what's the dollar figure we should put on uh, every avoided ton of co2 emissions clearly we should try harder than we are um but i think that's almost you know you're you're almost debating different visions of the future that are somewhat divorced from anything we can observe today it's just so hard to know right but this much is a certainty we're not doing it fast enough to avoid really significant harms like the ones we're seeing now, but that are getting worse. Uh, so I, I guess one could one could take away from the fact that I focus on adaptation, a degree of pessimism on my part, that we're going to find a way to cut emissions fast enough to save anything like our current way of life the way we like it right now. One of the, the fascinating things we hear in so many places is you'll see cities and communities have these goals of we're going to hit net zero, you know, by this date. And in Miami date, it was funny because we were, we were talking about the plan they have in place. You know, we'll cut it in half by 2030. We'll cut it completely by 2050. And then the, the people were looking at it and they, they realized you're not going to accomplish any of those goals with this particular plan you've set up. Is it even worth having that kind of goal? In the name of just objective truth, it's probably worth pointing out 
the, the consequences of Miami and Miami-Dade's success or failure at getting to net zero by any particular year, the consequences of that in terms of planetary warming are, are indistinguishable from zero, right? So it's not about changing the outcome in Miami because Miami is reducing emissions, all kinds of air quality benefits. But in terms of warming, what any one city does doesn't matter. Now, there's a there's definitely that's not reason not to try for sure. And I think in real terms, any city that pushes can come up with new solutions that can be copied elsewhere and that can move the needle globally. Um, but I think the bigger to me as a reporter, the more important debate in Miami and the thing that makes Miami worth watching for the rest of the world is not how much progress does it make on reducing emissions. It's how does it answer these questions on adaptation and, and to what degree you can maintain a desirable quality of life as a coastal city in an age of sea level rise uh, and, and worsening storms. That's where Miami's actions matter immensely, both to its own residents and its future, but also as a model, right? Most coastal cities don't have the resources that Miami has, and they don't have the, the sort of the skilled people working in government thinking on this. So I think the real, you know, what makes Miami a leader and a city to watch is how it wrestles with that adaptation resilience question more than I think the net zero thing doesn't mean it's not worth trying, it's very important, but I don't think that's gonna make a difference globally. You're listening to Planet Earth 2072, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez, and we're talking with Christopher Flavel, environment reporter for the New York Times. Now you can find links to his work. It's on our website at planetearth2072.com. By the way, what do you think about what he said when it comes to cutting emissions? Let's take a listen again. Was that it sure seemed clear to me, and it still seems clear to me, that we are just not going to cut emissions nearly fast enough to avoid really significant harm from global warming. Do you think that we've reached a place where we're never going to be able to cut emissions, or at least not anytime soon? So does that mean we're doomed? I don't know. Share your thoughts on this website or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. I really want to hear what you think. By the way, there's a book I've been mentioning that goes with this podcast. It's called Planet Earth 2072. It's a science fiction novel. Actually, it's a climate fiction novel. It's a collection of stories which take place in the cities of Miami and Las Vegas in the early fall of the year 2072. You can read the first of those stories for free right now. It's on Wattpad if you're on that uh, website. Look up Radio Host, or you can do it on our website, planetearth2072.com. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Christopher Flavel, environment reporter for the New York Times. I wonder, you know, from your travels and, and your reporting, does everybody just have a different approach 
because of geography or are, are they sharing, learning from each other? Are we trying to figure out how are we going to protect these big cities? Everybody's, I mean, I'm wondering if Miami's is so unique that nobody else could do what they're doing or you just get, everybody's kind of watching them anyway. Yeah. Look, I think there's lots of ways of slicing and dicing cities. They're different in important ways. Uh, number one, geography, right? Miami, of course, very exposed to rising seas is very low terrain. Um, it's also subject to sunny day floods because of the limestone that it's built on. And so it just doesn't have the ability really to stop the water with a wall, right? So Miami is, is unusually exposed. And of course, this drinking water comes from an aquifer that's very shallow and so very subject to, um, uh, to saltwater intrusion. So Miami has lots of problems, uh, but it also has lots of money, right? So I think if anything, Miami is an unusual test case not just for the range of threats it faces, but also for the fact that especially Miami Beach and other smaller jurisdictions in the county have enormous capacity, both money and skill and going forward tax base to do something about it, right? So I think what makes Miami a really interesting city and community is if there's anywhere in the US that can find ways to tackle this and to remain livable and enjoyable, Miami's got a good shot at it, right? And New York also in the same sort of unusual category of significant exposure, especially in Manhattan, but also significant resources. So I think reporters like me watch Miami, not because it's a bellwether for what other cities will do. Many cities can't afford whatever Miami Beach comes up with, but it's sort of a test of in the perfect scenario, where you've got access to very significant sums of money, what do you do with it? And are there lessons that come out of Miami that others can copy in some form to the degree they can afford it? Uh, and and really, it's interesting because we don't know yet, right? It's just not clear whether Miami will, A, find smart solutions with pumps to deal with Sunday flooding, or B, just figure out that you can live with this somehow. Maybe change the way you build and suddenly having roads underwater a few times a year isn't a big deal. It's a big it's a big unknown where Miami will go with this. You know, it's something I, I, I find really interesting is how people in South Florida uh, view this issue compared to other parts of the state. And I look at it politically and Republicans in South Florida get it because their backyards are flooding. So, so they understand like, okay, yeah, this is the problem. We got to do something about it. Um, but then it becomes a battle with their cohorts uh, back in Tallahassee. And I wonder from your travels, uh, you know, is this still a very divided issue uh, between the two sides, between Republicans and Democrats, or do you see any movement? Uh, you know, do you see Republicans who have, for the most part, pushed against it kind of moving towards it now because they're forced to, because you saw what happened in Texas over the last few years, uh, you know, with weather and power outages and, and, and from hurricanes. If, do we see Republicans finally starting to say, yes, all right, let's try to figure this out. I, I don't know. Is it still a divide or no? One of the things that drew me to adaptation uh, as a particular area within climate coverage is unlike the question of cutting emissions, it doesn't have the same degree of polarization. It doesn't, it doesn't cleave neatly along right, left, Republican, Democrat lines. Um, and I, I think that's not universally true uh, in West Virginia, for example. You still have significant resistance to talking about the need to adapt to climate change or even the reality of climate change.
But it seems like in South Florida, from every time I've been there and every conversation I've ever had with officials in South Florida, I don't detect a significant degree of debate over the reality that these things are happening, perhaps in part because you'd have to be delusional to object to the notion that these things are happening. Um, but I think what's refreshing about that lack of that relative lack of polarization is it leaves more room for discussion about what do we do? What are the solutions that make sense? And and look, the other thing that's appealing about the field of adaptation is no one knows the answers. It's still pretty new. And so there genuinely is room for for good faith debates over should you have big government programs that spend tons of money on infrastructure? Should you have at the other end of the spectrum, you know, uh, individual tax breaks? for homeowners so they can do what they want with elevating their home or build seawalls around the property. No one knows the right answer, but I don't get the sense that it's a field that is burdened with partisan infighting and ideological disputes. And I think you're right. Part of it is everybody who lives in areas like South Florida affected by this, they're worried about their own family and their own community. And that that is, I think, more pressing than this question of, well, how, what does this mean for our philosophical priors? Um, I think the thing that to note is that only gets you so far, right? It's great that Republicans and Democrats, for the most part in South Florida, aren't arguing over the reality, but the goal remains. The goal that matters remains finding good solutions, and especially what do you do if that means increasing taxes, right? If you got to pay for it. What do you do? And I think it's nice to at least strip away some of the noise from partisan politics. And so at least that lets you focus on the question of what are the right solutions. But I don't think, you know, any part of the country has nailed that yet, though South Florida is probably closer than most. You know, something you brought up a little earlier, and uh, this is also, it was a big conversation that we've had uh, down here is this idea of, you know, managed retreat and talking about, there are going to be communities that might disappear. We did see this actually after Hurricane Irma in the Keys. There were communities that, if you want to call them communities, people just started building there and or putting trailer parks there. And they were destroyed and the state said, okay, we're clearing that out and no one can be there anymore. We're going to try to just, let's put that back into a more natural setting and maybe we could use that as a barrier. But, you know, the the question is going to come up at some point, if it hasn't already here, maybe there are neighborhoods we're going to have to clear out and we're going to have to then say to people, this neighborhood isn't safe anymore. It floods too much. We're not going to pay for this. You can't get insurance anyway. Do you see that as a big problem coming up in the, in the coming decades, not just in Florida, but anywhere where we're going to have to shove people out because nature's going to take it anyway, but we're going to have to shove them out. The thing that I'd love to really just drive home for anyone listening to this is there's the question is not, do we engage in some sort of pullback from vulnerable areas? The question is how and when. And as anybody who studies managed retreat will tell you, the alternative to managed retreat is not no retreat, it's unmanaged retreat, right? It's a situation where a big storm comes and you can't protect everyone and people get forced out of their homes without regard to what they do next or whether they can afford it, right? The goal from uh, policy experts and and some officials who are talking about managed retreat, their, their goal is how do we do it in a way that at least reflects some sort of equity goal and fairness goal and helps people get somewhere safer and, and isn't just some sort of like anarchic, you know, 
flee and good luck. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be an increasingly important question once we get our minds around the fact that some places can't be protected indefinitely, at least a cost that we're willing to pay. What next? Uh, and Louisiana, in fact, I think is farther along than Florida in thinking about this because, of course, relative sea level rise is so much faster in Louisiana because of subsidence. They're already coming up with blueprints and schemes and designs and at least ideas for how to fairly decide which areas to pull back from and how to help people find new homes in new communities or built up communities. It's happening piecemeal in Florida already. And I've written this story, others have as well, in the Florida Keys, the county officials are already making decisions about which roads to raise because of sea level rise. On its face, the most benign decision, right? Nothing to object to. But the reality is, since they don't have money to raise every road, they got to choose. Well, what are you choosing? What else are you deciding when you decide which roads to raise? You're deciding which communities and which homes will still have dry roads right? You are effectively deciding which places you will protect and by extension, which places you will not, right? So manager treat takes many guises and has many triggers and catalysts. So I wouldn't want listeners to come away with the impression that this is some future discussion. This is happening now. And the question is, to what degree do we want officials who are forced to make infrastructure decisions to decide these things on their own versus having some sort of a broader conversation about, well, how should we at least how should we begin to choose which areas to protect? And then at least it won't feel like it's being thrust upon us, right? So again, I think the thing that is lagging the most in this debate is not the technical questions or the policy questions. It's the issue of how do you make it inclusive and make it a conversation with voters and residents. That's the part where it seems like the U.S., South Florida and elsewhere remains uh, really slow. And thank you for bringing that up. It's a fascinating conversation down here. You're right. And, and uh, you know, you, you see people see that and they know if their roads are not the ones being raised, they understand uh, what their future could hold. And then on the other side of that, in Miami Beach, you see uh, some people get really upset when roads are raised because water has to flow down and it's flowing down into into parts of the community that are not as high. So, it this, yeah, this is such a fascinating uh aspect of this conversation and and where it goes forward. Again, you're listening to the podcast Planet Earth 2072, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks again for listening. And by the way, you can follow us on most podcast platforms. And if you're a listener, please tap that subscribe button. And if you like the content, please rate and review and then tell somebody about it. We're talking with Christopher Flavel, environment reporter for The New York Times. We have links to his work at Planet Earth 2072 on the website or on Facebook. So what do you think about what he said about managed retreat? What would you do? Think about it this way. If the community that you lived in was flooding all the time and city leaders, county leaders, maybe even the state comes in and says you could no longer live in that home because we're going to take this whole community and we're going to return it to nature. 
because it'll be better that way. It'll actually protect all the other communities. How would you feel if you had to leave your home? Because managed retreat is something that's happening already, and it's probably going to become even more prevalent in the years and decades to come. Share your thoughts. Again, go to planetearth2072.com. I'd love to hear what you think about that. Now, before we get to the conversation, I wanted to tell you about another podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. It's called The Reporter Studio. What do you know about the news media? Have you ever met a journalist? Welcome to The Reporter Studio. The first one was like the Superman phase, where it's like, I can do anything and I'll never be harmed. And then the second one was... I can do most things, maybe I'll be harmed. And then the third one was, something will happen to me. If Audience, I anger. Um, people are like, oh, these are fact checkers are just, you know, they're not really umpires. They're the liberal media. They're trying to put their thumb on the scales. But worse than that, like you'd be kind of horrified by the profanity and some of the- That's if email. you go to Mars, drop off, and then immediately come back. Like we're talking about something eight, nine, 10, 12 years, you're going to that planet. And while you're there, you're not on the surface of the planet. You're, you're stuck in your spacecraft or stuck underground because it's I'm nobody's patsy. And one thing I learned after the Iraq war is that you just cannot allow um, someone else to control. Today, it's a bit rough being a journalist. And sometimes I would agree we deserve the criticism. But many of us are just ordinary people trying to do a job the best we can. Learn more about the reality of the lives of journalists at The Reporter Studio. Go to thereporterstudio.com and find the podcast on your podcast app. You can learn more about the podcast at thereporterstudio.com. But let's get back to our conversation with New York Times environment reporter Christopher Flavel. Last couple of things I wanted to ask you. Um, first, just this big picture, uh, uh, the idea of climate change. How has that idea, that term changed in the way people talk about it and think about it? And what do you think? I mean, as a reporter and you've seen it, you know, on, on from the local level to the, you know, to the federal level. How should it change if we're going to really prepare ourselves for the future and do anything about it? Because it just, again, it just seems like you say climate change and you're preaching to one, you know, to the choir on this side, but over here, you know, you, you get denial and defiance and, and they're just a pushback. I don't know. How, how has the term changed? How should it change the way we think about it and talk about it? You know, I'm not, there is a camp that says we should spend time thinking about what words we use and can we bring more people into the conversation and, and focus the conversation on on what to do if we choose terms that produce a less strident pushback from some corners. I'm not sure I'm in that camp only because I'm, I'm not aware of some other magical term that you could say instead of climate change that would cause people who object to climate change to say, okay, then I'm all right with this. Uh, I, I, think, I think that might be a lot to ask. I'm heartened by the fact that when I talk to local officials, town, city, county officials, 
even in the reddest parts of America about this stuff. Not universally, but in general, there is a strong sense of, call it what you want to call it, my residents are facing more floods, more heat waves, more drought, more whatever. As a local official, I got to work on this. I don't really want to waste my time arguing over the science or the terminology or who's to blame. I just want to fix it. So I guess the optimist in me thinks that th this debate over what we, the words we use, that, that's going to fall away as more and more people say, help me. I need my local officials to help me. And then I think that'll give local officials, the few that are left that are arguing about the science, cover to say, let's stop worrying about the words and stop worrying about who's to blame and just think, what do we do? Because that is the debate that needs to be joined here, right? Uh, so that's that's my sense that sort of the, the continuing uh, uh, noise and heat over terminology is really, uh, sort of increasingly the exclusive reserve or the near exclusive reserve of maybe federal politicians and in some cases state politicians at the local level the people i talk to seem to get that there's no time for that uh christopher i want you to imagine we go forward into the future 50 years and i mean i want your idea of what you think miami but the country in general even what do you think will be some of the biggest things that will change you know, when if, if if everything is as it is, temperatures keep rising, ocean levels keep rising, and 50 years from now, what do you think, you know, you, you jump out of a time machine and you see the world, you see the country, you see Miami, what does it look like to you? You know, at, at the risk of saying something obvious, I don't think, I would advise anybody to be suspicious of people who claim to know what Miami will look like in 10 or 20 years, let alone 50 years. Uh, the, the one thing we can be sure of is we don't know. And the one thing that we can be almost sure of, it, it probably won't look much like it does now. Uh, it, it, you could imagine a world where you've got incredible technology has been developed that can magically keep out the ocean from storm surge and also from the ground. And you've got sort of a hermetically sealed bubble, right? Who knows? You can imagine a world where you've got just a, a cluster of of very very wealthy people living in what are effectively floating towers you know uh you can imagine a world where it's just uh um you know shanty towns where the people who stuck around are the ones who couldn't who couldn't afford to move and somewhere you wouldn't want to be uh it's just so hard to know i think the one the one thing that is certain is we probably shouldn't wait to find out before we do something about it uh, and also, we should keep in mind that there is that, that officials and residents have tremendous agency over the answer to that question, right? What Miami looks like in 50 years is not just a question of what will the world thrust upon us. It's a question of what sort of climate-adjusted world and city do you want, and what are we willing to pay for, and what are we willing to accept as close enough to fair? And let's start pushing that direction, right? I mean, these questions, going back to retreat, the problem with not talking about retreat now is it only gets harder. And if you don't do it, you know, the, the, as much as you want to do it in a thoughtful way now, not a panicked way, well, the panicked way gets more likely later. So I think the more forethought that goes into it and the more sort of rational discussion over which places do you protect, how much you're going to pay for it, 
who do you who do you charge for it and what are you willing to accept in terms of destruction and distraction to your life if you answer those sooner you can get closer to the world you want so you know rather than uh, saying here's what it looked like in 50 years i would just end on what i think is a hopeful note of people still have pretty significant influence over what cities like miami will look like um, but it gets harder and harder to exercise that agency the longer we wait or the longer that we pretend we can just maintain the status quo and we don't have to make any big changes right that seems like the most pernicious idea here not not the not the dispute about climate change in places like florida that's in south florida that that dispute is mostly over the dispute that i think is worrisome is this dispute that says well let's just keep doing what we're doing and if we have to build bigger pumps we will and it's going to be okay that seems like a dangerous bet to me so i think that's the question miami will have to answer if it wants to make the miami of 50 years from now look as good as it can that was new york times environment reporter christopher flavel you can find a link to his work in the description of the podcast or on the website planetearth2072.com by the way we recorded a lot of this interview earlier this year but as of the last recording the senate had just passed the inflation reduction act and the House is likely to send it to the president for his signature. In that bill, more than $300 billion to tackle climate change and boost clean energy. There's also going to be the launch of the National Climate Bank to hold investments in clean energy technologies. So we'll wait and see and hope that this is a step in the right direction. Also, I really do want to ask this question of everybody. I'd love to hear your thoughts and you can post your comments on the website or on Facebook, but I want to know what do you think Miami or your city is going to look like in 50 years? If the temperature keeps rising and the oceans keep rising, how will that change the landscape of your hometown? Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts shared on the website or on Facebook. Well, coming up in episode two of the podcast. You know, you can be part of the generation or the part of the group of people who messed it up for everybody in perpetuity ever. Or conversely, you can be part of the group of people that fix the biggest problem that anybody had ever faced, right? And it just kind of comes down to what kind of person you want to be. We talk with Mario Ariza, environment reporter for Floodlight and the author of the book Disposable City, Miami's Future on the Shores of a Climate Catastrophe. That's coming up in two weeks in the next episode of Planet Earth 2072. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. You can follow more about our guests and the stories and articles that were used in research for the podcast at planetearth2072.com. I've also shared some of the reporting that's been done on the IPCC report to help you better understand it. I would encourage you, go look at it, at least look at parts of it, and just try to understand what scientists from around the world are saying about the role that we're playing, we humans, are playing in the warming of this planet. And by the way, if you're a skeptic or straight up denier of climate science, then I'm gonna ask you one question. Do you show the same skepticism of the sources that you cite as your truth as you do towards science? Just read it, just read the report and then ask yourself the question, what if we humans really are responsible for this? Thanks again for listening. 
I also want to tell you about the book that goes with the podcast. You see, this idea started as a science fiction novel, actually a climate fiction novel called Planet Earth 2072. And the first story from that novel is available right now for free. You can find it at the website or on Wattpad if you're on that platform. Just look up Radio Host. The book is a collection of 12 separate yet interconnected stories, and it'll be out later this year. Here, by the way, is a sample of one of those stories. Part 1. Five Days Before the Storm Miami knows water. After the king floods of 2052 and the storms of 2060 and 2061, this city has taken Mother Nature's best punches, rebuilt herself, and stands in defiance. Yes, Miamians are all sorts of stubborn. Sadie Kynes is Wisconsin-born, but her soul is from Miami. She stands on the docking platform a few feet off to the side of two dozen souls, huddled, waiting for the next ferry boat. Rain pelts the plexiglass roof like stone smacking on the side of a building. Sadie stares forward at the virtual images that hover inches from her face, with a gray city as the backdrop. Check messages from the office. Just above her sightline, a box opens. A British voice responds. An urgent message from Director Coriante. There's an all-staff mandatory meeting at noon. Where's the director now? The voice answered. Director Coriante is at the National Hurricane Center for a briefing with the governor. Continue messages. You have a voicemail from Peter Bowman. The recording started with a muffled sound and a clacking, as if something or someone was moving around. Finally, a young-sounding voice with a heavy vocal fry came on. Um, hey, Sadie, uh, uh, listen, if you get this early enough, can you stop by the donut shop and get a few Nutella donuts, like uh, half a dozen? Thanks. Also, we gotta talk when you get into the office. It's really important, but I can't say anything, at least in front of anybody. I appreciate it. That kid, I swear. Cube, play the news, local NPR. Start with the latest feed on Hurricane Carew. The screen on her Airreel 21 glasses shifted blue before going clear. To the right of her vision, the NPR logo popped up. A female voice followed. The latest from the Florida Emergency Network shows Carew currently located at 24.5 degrees latitude and 71.7 degrees longitude. It remains a Category 1 storm, moving at 14 miles per hour, with maximum sustained winds of 87 miles per hour. The cone of possibility gives it a 5% chance of hitting South Florida. Hurricane forecasters continue to say they expect the storm to turn north within the next 48 hours. We now turn to NPR News Desk with Aaron McPherson. World leaders are meeting in New York for the second day of the global conference. Day one saw tensions rise between some of the leaders of the South Pacific region. Hundreds of protesters clash with police blocks from the One World Trade Center. We go to Najir Madesh, who's in New York. She spoke with the vice president yesterday. Vice President Angela McMillan spent most of the day pushing back against criticisms from global leaders and defending the president's actions. Four typhoons have displaced five million citizens from the Philippines, Singapore, and Vietnam over the last three years. She went on to say that the U.S. will continue to offer military support to protect refugees still making their way inland from the areas most devastated by floods. 
the VP also upheld the nation's promise to spend more than $200 billion in aid from governments that accept the eco-refugees. The president of Vietnam attacked U.S. President Charles Perez, claiming the Americans are more worried about the race to Mars with China than the global disaster of rising seas. China, meanwhile, responded to accusations that it tightened its borders along Vietnam's northeastern region, saying that they are upholding the 2042 EU refugee agreement. But citizens have been posting videos of border patrol attacks on swaths of refugees. Chinese officials deny those attacks. I'm Najir Madesh in New York. The future of the Santa Maria della Salute, the 17th century basilica that's been teetering on the edge of destruction due to decades of rising waters, could be facing its final doom. Yesterday, the Italian parliament voted to end efforts to save the structure. The last 25 years have been challenging as flooding events increased in number and intensity, making the cathedral unusable. The Catholic Church shut the doors to the salute more than a decade ago. One faction believes the government should raise the building, but the parliament put that idea to rest permanently. Italian President Carmela Donatessi said it's a sad day, but the reality of our times means we will lose a lot of our history. Protesters gathered in hundreds of boats and encircled the basilica. Engineers fear the water damage has already made much of the structure unstable. Bleep, bleep, bleep. The blue symbol flashed in the top left-hand corner of Sadie's vision. The AI voice came on. An incoming call from Elizabeth Kynes. Take it. Hello, Mom. What are you doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? I'm worried about you. What's going on with this hurricane? It looks like it's heading right for you. No, Mom. The forecasts have the storm going away from us. Hun, are you sure? The storm is making me uneasy. You've never been through one of these things. Mom, relax. There's only a tiny chance that it hits us. And if it did, the station is built to handle it. Well, I'm your mother. I can't relax. And I just have a bad feeling about this. Mom, the office is practically a bunker. Try not to worry too much. The city can handle it. Okay, okay. But please keep us informed and please call your grandmother later, okay? I love you. Bye, Mom. The ferry arrived ten minutes late and bumped hard against the platform, pushing water up over the deck. The crowd did a collective jump to avoid the wave. The ride through the river and across the bay takes longer than normal, thanks to the rough waters. It's rained for two straight weeks. The pumping systems and most high-rises are at full blast, pushing millions of gallons of water a day through the man-made channels. None of the protective layers are working to keep the water out. The ferry passes what used to be Brickle Key through the Fisherman's Channel and past the tiny mound that once was Fisher Island. Sadie stares out at the mega cruise ships on the other side of the dock. Robot drones whiz by in the air. A voice comes over the speaker. Sub-South Beach 1 ahead. Please remain seated until the overhead lights turn off, allowing you to roam freely in the cabin. The boat bumped hard against the platform again. A second later, there's a loud clang and a green light goes off. The crowd exits onto a covered dock that leads into a tunnel through the city wall. Sub-South Beach 1 is a bustling city of a half a million. Ten years ago, leaders came up with a name after the Great Reconstruction of 62. A conglomeration of federal and state agencies pitched in half of the $5 trillion price tag. 
The rest came from influential international investors. The city became an experiment for other coastal megacities to copy. North Miami Beach was not so lucky. The ocean cut the island in half and turned the northern section into a collection of smaller islands. The government decided to allow nature to retake them. It's a popular site for divers who want to see remnants of the old Miami. Sadie entered the city center and went straight on Washington Avenue. She ascended to the pedestrian level three floors up. On the ground floor, orange, green, and blue autonomous vehicles moved around on electric roads. On the second level, the occasional Metro Mover car was by. After a quick stop at the donut shop, Sadie arrived at Sub South Beach One Resilience Headquarters. The three-story building had no signage or any other markings. The light beige structure had few windows and a rooftop with four large black half domes, protective coverings for the satellite dishes. Half a dozen Nutella donuts and a latte with a ridiculous amount of sugar. I swear, how your heart doesn't explode is beside me, said Sadie. She handed her assistant his breakfast. So what's the secret that had to wait? And why do you look like you've been up for days? Peter takes one of the donuts in two large bites. He motions her to sit as he pulls up an infrared map of South Florida and the Caribbean. Okay, so I have been up the last couple of days. Sadie, the forecasts are wrong. Everything those people at the Hurricane Center are using to track this storm is wrong. Sadie stares at her barely out-of-college assistant. It's taken a while to get used to his quirkiness. Mostly, it's his rudeness that turns people off, but she understands he's a genius and not good at talking to others. She tries not to give a condescending glance, but waits for him to explain. Okay, look, everyone goes by the mansion model. That model is shit. Sadie took a deep breath. She had no reference point to question the authority of the mansion model. It was the standard for Noah and all hurricane forecasters. She nodded, signifying that she wanted to hear more. The current model uses 23 different formulas tracking everything from like temperature and winds and currents, etc. But I use 30 and I've been working on the figures the last couple of days. They say the cone of possibility is like less than 5% of hitting Miami. I'm telling you, today, it's more like 50%. Peter. Sadie took a deep breath without showing it. Peter, when did you come up with your own algorithm to figure this out? That's not part of your job. Well, that's the thing. I wasn't just hired to track social behavior during disasters or the, the potential economic and supply chain ramifications of storms. Sorry, but I had been secretly working on a new model for a few years. No one at the Hurricane Center was interested. They're idiots. They're so arrogant. Now, how do I know your model's more accurate? Asked Sadie. The mansion model became the standard because 30 years ago, the freaking senator pushed it forward as the standard. No one questioned it. But if you want to know, I looked over the last three decades and the accuracy of the calculations, barely 25%. Think about it. If the model's wrong, they always can just say, Mother Nature's hard to predict. She kind of is, replied Sadie, who's now starting to show her frustration on her brow. Sadie, I checked these figures with some of my friends. My figures are right. 
the chances of that storm heading towards us are a lot more than people think. Sadie stared into the brilliant blue eyes of the naive genius boy and saw the sincerity. But how could she take his side with the storm two days from turning north, as the current model predicted? By the way, that's not all, said Peter, as he inhaled a second donut. It gets worse? Okay, look, Peter points at the screen. He clicks on the right corner, and a reddish-yellow circle pops up on the map. Hurricane Carew. The storm hasn't really formed. It's kind of scattered. But once it hits the northern Bahama part right here, it's going to blow up in size. He taps a few buttons on the pad. The reddish-yellow dot doesn't turn north like expected. It heads west, passing over the Great Abaco, eventually Grand Bahamas, and straight at Miami. As it edges closer to South Florida, it eventually shapes into a perfectly formed hurricane, like a table saw about to slice through a log. Its color turns intensely red throughout with a perfectly formed eye. Sadie can't pull her eyes off the screen. She watched the loop as the storm formed into a massive circle with intense winds stretching out more than 100 miles from the center. Carew could hit us in like four days Probably a Category 5 or 6. When Carew lands, it could have winds around 220 miles an hour, said Peter. Peter grabbed his third donut. He stared at the monitor for a few seconds, speechless. Eventually, he took another large bite. What am I supposed to do with this? We can't just say, hey, the system we've all been following is inaccurate. No one's going to listen to us. I'm leaving. I want another Vav. Sadie leaned forward. Finish chewing your food. What did you say? I got offered a position at Homeland Security, he replied. Sadie stared at him for a moment with disbelief and a tad of sadness. Wow. I can't say I'm not disappointed, but I am happy for you. What's the position? Or is that out of my pay grade? Peter nodded. Yeah, it's some classified position. I'll be in the Pentagon a lot, but... It's been in the works for like six months. I had to be quiet about it. When are you leaving? Well, that's the thing. I have to leave today. The new boss has offered to take me on a plane out of MIA tonight. Peter, I'm sorry. I know. I can't say much. It's all the secrecy. But forget that because you have to make people believe what I'm telling you. This storm is going to be huge. And that was called A Storm is Coming, the first story in the novel Planet Earth 2072. You can find it on the website planetearth2072.com or if you're on Wattpad, follow me there at Radio Host. Thanks again for listening.